Remain standing for our gospel lesson and sermon text from Luke chapter 2. I'm only going to read verses 8 to 14 in Luke 2. Again, submit yourself to the Word of God. This is God's gospel. Now, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over the flock by night. And behold... An angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angels said to them, Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for sending peace in the person of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Lord. Help us today to meditate on our peace with you and to treasure in our hearts even as Mary did, these wonderful things. We need your help, and so we ask for it now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Merry Christmas. According to the, the Western Church's calendar, there are two Sundays in Christmas this year, not every year, Uh, today and next Sunday this year, and each of these two Sundays, on each of them, I'll be preaching from this basic text, the first half of Luke 2. Next Sunday will be my more typical expository sermon. We'll walk through the text, we'll consider the historical context, and we'll make theological applications and practical applications along the way. But today we're going to focus in on one section of this bigger passage, even on one verse, in fact, on one word. The section is the one that I read just now, verses 8 to 14, and you may have guessed from the title which verse we're going to home in on. Verse 14 is perhaps the most famous Christmas passage of them all. It's where the heavenly host make themselves known to the senses of these shepherds just outside of Bethlehem. And they sing, glory to God in the highest, on earth peace, goodwill toward men. How would you like to have attended that great cosmic you know, choral event? Someday you'll get to see and hear everything those shepherds saw and heard and a whole lot more. Not only is verse 14 probably the most famous, one of the most famous Christmas verses, it also contains the most famous Christmas word 
What do you hear and see? Which word do you hear and see more than any other word during this time of year? Peace, right? Everyone, even unbelievers, know that Christmas is about peace on earth. Everyone knows Christmas is about peace, but no one seems to know what peace is, what this word means. Christians know that Jesus was born to bring peace, but do we know what this peace is fundamentally? How much of your understanding of peace is shaped by the world rather than by the Bible? One of the things you've probably noticed about Christmas devotionals or Christmas sermons is that most of them are designed to evoke certain emotions, certain sentiments, right? A good Christmas message is one that leaves the hearer warm and and cozy and comfortable and inspired and feeling generally Christmassy. And you see see this especially in the popular Christmas songs that get played on the radio Uh, even Christian radio stations. Nobody wants to be uncomfortable or challenged or confronted at Christmas. That's the time we take a break. from It's the time of year when we escape all the discomforts and difficulties of life in this groaning creation. We just want to be at peace, right? The question, though, is what kind of peace are we looking for in, in the depths of our soul? What do we really want? Is it the peace of God or is it one of the world's versions of peace? Christmas offers peace. That's the message because Christmas is about the gospel. It's about the good news, but the good news came to address bad news. The gospel is confrontational, therefore Christmas is confrontational. The incarnation of God is good news that confronts our pride. Christmas is good news that intrudes on our earthly-minded comfort, our earthly-minded joy. The coming of God to earth is good news that undermines our complacency. Christmas is good news that challenges our worldly notions of peace. If we answer honestly the question, what is peace? What, what peace is, is the, the heavenly host referring to in verse 14? What is biblical peace? What kind of peace did, the, did God incarnate give to planet earth? If we answer these questions honestly, we'll become uncomfortable before we become comforted. The first thing the tidings of comfort and joy do is to make us a little uneasy. The gospel causes dissatisfaction before it accomplishes joy, satisfaction, contentment. It produces holy discontentment before it cultivates godly contentment. And this, this doesn't just happen at the beginning of the Christian life. The good news of Jesus Christ continually takes believers from one degree of glory to another by breaking us down and building us up, by making us uncomfortable before it comforts us, by confronting us with our false notions of peace for the purpose of instilling in us the real thing. 
Okay, so it doesn't just break us down. It doesn't just knock us down. It does so to build us up, to glorify us, to make us more like Jesus. So what is the peace that the angels refer to in verse 14? The best way to answer this question is to first look at what this peace is not and then to look at what it is. So what kind of peace did the incarnation of God not accomplish? At least not yet, as we'll see. Well, the coming of Christ did not accomplish absolute political peace. Someday Jesus will establish absolute world peace. That's a definite. But we don't experience anything like that now, do we? Later in this same gospel that I just read from, in Luke 21.10, Jesus says that between the time of his first and second coming, nations will rise against nations and kingdom against kingdom. Verse 12, people will lay their hands on you and persecute you, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Over the last 2,000 years, we've seen these words of Christ fulfilled in every single generation. The last century or two have produced as much bloodshed in war, as much persecution of Christians as any period has. As the gospel goes forth to all the nations, as the great commission is fulfilled, as, as the mustard seed turns into that tree, as the leaven makes its way through all the, the, the flour, the devil's furious resistance intensifies as we see in Revelation 12. Now, as Americans, we're largely shielded from this because here we, we still experience a level of religious and political freedom that most Christians during the last 20 centuries have not enjoyed. But if we broaden our historical and geographical lenses, we'll see that the world has been beset with warfare and the church has been racked with persecution even as it grows ever since Jesus uttered those words in Luke 21. Christians throughout the world regularly have opportunity, as Jesus says, to bear witness. And we in America will likely have an increasing number of opportunities to bear witness as well. Jesus wasn't born to wipe out war and persecution. He didn't come the first time to establish political peace. He didn't even come to create domestic peace in its fullness. Domestic peace is, you could say, political peace in the home, in the family. And Jesus doesn't even promise that in its entirety. There's a great Christmas verse later in Luke that for some reason never gets read. I've never heard this verse read during Christmas time. I'm sure you know which one I'm talking about. Of course, I'm referring to Luke 12, 51, that inspiring and uplifting verse where Jesus says, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Do you know any Advent or Christmas songs based on that verse? Just 10 chapters after Luke records the angels singing peace on earth, he records Jesus saying, no peace on earth, but division. Listen to the whole statement. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. 
from now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. There will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now, before I, before I go on, before I go to the second thing that, that the peace in Luke 2.14 is not, let me qualify what I've said slightly. The gospel certainly does create relational peace, especially in the Christian home. And we're called to do what we can to be peacemakers in our relationships, in, in, in our work in the world. We, we should work toward peace in our society. It's good and right for believers to seek peace between mate between nations, between family members. And the gospel can accomplish that, at least in provisional ways. But this side of the second coming, any peace we experience in these horizontal relationships is relative and incomplete. It's, it's a shadow of the relational peace that humans will experience in the new heavens and new earth. When Christ came to earth, he did not establish world peace. He did not promise political peace. He did not guarantee relational peace peace. Second, the first coming of Christ did not accomplish absolute inner peace. The first point was that the first coming of Christ didn't create outer peace, circumstantial peace. It didn't accomplish absolute peace out there in the world. And now in this second point, I'm saying that Christ didn't come to accomplish absolute inner peace either. Now, I'm using the word absolute intentionally because the gospel does offer personal peace in this world, relative personal peace in this world. Paul says in Philippians 4 that as you learn to trust in Christ and cast your cares on God, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's a sure and comforting promise now. But along with this peace, there is always tremendous amounts of trouble and inner conflict that, it, that never go away. Just as Jesus promised when he said, in this world you will have trouble. In this world there'll be countless opportunities for you to cry out in the words of Psalm 42.5 where the psalmist turns to his soul, he turns inward and he asks, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? You can have peace like a river attending your soul at all times. But in this life, your peace, your inner peace will be somewhat partial. It'll really only be a foretaste of what lies ahead. Your experience constantly tells you that there's more to come. While we live in this world, there exists in everyone an inner Warfare, actually. Paul talks about it in Romans 7. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another work, uh, another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. But even apart from our sin problem, we groan inwardly while we live under the curse of this groaning world. So that, that peace that Paul's talking about is, is possible. It's yours. It belongs to you. You can live in it. But you can never escape this inward groaning that Paul says in, talks about in Romans 8. 
verse 23, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul, we're adopted now as sons, of course, and daughters, but Paul looks forward to the adoption on the last day when we'll be raised from the dead and given new bodies. But until then, we groan inwardly. And your inner groaning won't go away in this life. There's a consummate inner peace that awaits you in the world to come, in the new heavens and new earth. Are you uncomfortable yet? Is this what we want to think about during Christmas? Well, if the first coming of Christ didn't accomplish the world peace or the inner peace that we long for, and and that we know is coming, that we know is coming, then what kind of peace did it accomplish? What are these angels singing about in Luke 2.14? Is there an absolute peace that we can experience now in this world, on this earth, in its fullest and final form? Yes. When Jesus came the first time, he accomplished a concrete and specific peace that you can possess now. John's father sang about it a little earlier in Luke, in Luke 1, when Zechariah's mouth was finally opened. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. At the climax of his song, he speaks to his newly born son, John. This is John the Baptist. And he sings about John's future role in giving knowledge to the Lord's people. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of their salvation and the forgiveness of their sins. And at the end of his song, he calls this salvation, do you remember? The way of peace. The way of peace. And so when we read about this peace in Luke 2, we need to be thinking about the peace that John, or that Zechariah had just sung about. Salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Jesus gives an absolute peace now. He provides peace that you can experience in its fullest form. Salvation through the forgiveness of sins. The peace the angels are talking about fundamentally, you see, is peace with God. Peace with God. And when you have this peace, you have all of it in its full and final form. World peace is not promised in your life. Even inner peace is somewhat provisional, often elusive. We wait for the day when we will experience it fully and permanently. But absolute peace with God is yours now in Christ. By nature, every member of mankind was at war with God, estranged from God at conception. Everyone. Every human who has ever been born of a woman can say with David in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. None of us by nature was at peace with God. All of us by nature were at enmity with God. In our sin, we were at war with our maker. 
That's every person's story to a man. Even if you were baptized as a baby. No one escapes the original sin of Adam. No one comes into existence naturally at peace with God. The, the moment the egg was fertilized, you were a God-hater in need of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Now, if you were baptized as a baby, if you are a covenant child, then the promises of God came to you right away, right? But they didn't come to you through your parents. They didn't come to you because you naturally deserved them or had them coming, they came to you because you needed them, because by nature you were a son of Adam. And there was only one way peace between you and God could be restored. God had to become human and bear your sin by dying on a tree. That's the only way. Every repentant person's sins are nailed were nailed to the Roman cross that Jesus died on. The peace and goodwill that the angels sing about belongs to those who have turned in repentance and faith. It, it doesn't belong to every man on earth. This peace and this goodwill toward men, it's offered to all, to everyone from every nation, but only those who receive it by faith in Jesus, by repenting of their sins, actually end up receiving it. It won't be experienced by all men. But those who do have it, have all of it. So not all have it, but those who do have it, have all of it. God, God doesn't give some of it now and then some of it later. There's no already but not yet aspect to this peace with God. He, other gifts work that way. We, we receive some now, but there's more to come. But there's no such thing as partial peace with God or provisional peace with God. There's just peace with God. You're either entirely hostile to God or entirely at peace with God. There's no middle ground. The absolute peace the angels are singing about fundamentally is that vertical peace that has come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And this vertical peace between God and man is the source, the foundation of all other kinds of peace that flow from it. And that will be accomplished in time, eventually. The first verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing makes the point I'm trying to make. It says, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. That's the message of the angels. That's the peace that has come to earth. God and sinners were once at war. Who were once at war are now at peace with one another in Christ. Listen to what Paul says about this peace with God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.21 And you, <coughs> who once were alienated and hostile in mind, 
doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled, listen to this, in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Notice that phrase, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That's the Christmas message. Why did the Son of God take a body of flesh? Why is, why is Christmas important? Why do we celebrate it? Because it points to the death of Christ and his body of flesh for our sins. It's the gospel. Christmas is ultimately about the cross. God became man so that he could die on a cursed tree. And, and the, the reconciliation that happens when you are united to Jesus is not subject to degrees, you know, more or less. It doesn't increase. You, you can't be sort of reconciled to God or mostly reconciled to God. Either you are or you're not. Either you're at peace or you're not. If you're a believer in, in 10 trillion years from now, your peace with God will not be any greater or deeper or fuller than it is today, right now, this very second. The Christian faith is truly the only religion that offers this kind of peace with God. Man-made religions try to obtain peace with God through trying harder to be good, right? So, um, the, the way natural man thinks about peace with God, there are, it is subject to degrees and it, in that it's dependent on us and how we're doing. Many Christians fall into this trap. I fall into this trap. You do as well. Uh, most of us are, are seduced into thinking and acting as though our actions dictate how much favor God has toward us. How easy it is for us to believe that our peace with God fluctuates with our performance. If you're like me, when you have a good day, you feel more peace with God. If you have a bad day, you feel less peace with God. And not often enough do you explicitly tell yourself that by faith in Christ alone, you have perfect peace with God now in this life, on this earth, in this world, at this moment. I dare say that the inner peace that Christ gives, the, the peace like a river that attends your soul, can only be known and experienced insofar as you know and believe that you're at absolute peace with God, apart from anything that you've done. Perfect peace with God by virtue of the death of Christ in his body of flesh alone. If you want to have the peace that transcends all understanding in your bones, then get the gospel in your bones. Put to death that lingering try harder religion and accept the absolutely free living water that we read about in Revelation. It's a, it's a gift. It's free. 
and he has given it to you in his son, Jesus Christ. And so rest in peace that God made peace with you. Rest in that peace. Now, he made peace with you while you were an enemy. I want that to sink into our hearts and into our bones, even today. This, this message is for veteran Christians, if you've been a Christian for 50 years or more, as well as unbelievers. Peace with God is not something you work for. It's a gift you receive. It's not something you do. It's a person you believe. It doesn't come from within. It came to you from without, outside of you. It wasn't produced in you or in this world. It came from heaven to earth as an undeserved mercy. And so, stop trying to earn it. Stop imagining that God's love for you in Christ is capricious or fleeting. Rest in the reconciliation that God has accomplished between you and Him. And then watch as you do that, watch the effect this will have on your internal peace, on that inner peace, which is built on your peace with God. Peace of God is built on the foundation of the peace of your peace with God. There are two and only two types of people in this world, in this room. There are those who have not received the peace with God, people who haven't been reconciled to God by his son's death through his body of flesh. And there are those who have received it, but they struggle to let this absolute, objective peace lead them into the depths of inner peace, subjective peace, peace that, when it's experienced, transcends all understanding. And if, if you don't have peace with God at all, if the blood of his son has not been sprinkled on your heart as you've trusted in him to save you from your sins, the first thing you must do to receive this peace is to recognize that you're at war with God. The reason most people don't have peace with God is that they don't know, don't believe that they're natural-born God-haters. Most God-haters would not style themselves as such. To those of you who are at peace with God, and which is most of us today, right? Most of us here. I want you to deal with the question, with this question during the rest of your during the rest of the Christmas season, okay? In the next 10 days. Is my peace with God the wonder of my life? Do I think about it constantly? Does it consume me? Let me ask it in the second person. Is the peace that God has established with you in Christ through his death, is it the wonder of your life? Do you think about it more than you think about it? anything else in the whole world. You who are estranged from God Most High have been reconciled to Him through Christ's body of flesh in death. 
You have received salvation through the forgiveness of your sins. Are you captivated by this reality more than you're captivated by anything else? If not, there's no better way, no better time, I should say, than Christmas to let this intensely wonderful news grip you in a new and fresh way. There's a delightful verse in 1 Peter, the first chapter, where Peter is talking about the gospel, the gospel of salvation. And he says, almost in passing, that the gospel contains, quote, things into which angels long to look, end quote. Now, I, I know there's some, some smart and spiritually minded people here in this congregation, in this worship service, but the angels are smarter and wiser and deeper than all of us. They've accumulated a lot of wisdom over the millennia. They get the big picture and the little picture better than we do. They're great and wonderful spiritual beings. And yet they never tire of thinking about and rejoicing in and reflecting on, looking into the gospel. The gospel. You, you won't ever hear an angel say, yeah, salvation through the forgiveness of sins is pretty terrific. The peace that God has made with humanity through the blood of his son is great news. But let's get on to deeper things. Peter's phrase, things into which angels long to look, comes at the end of the paragraph. And the beginning of the paragraph starts this way. Concerning this salvation. The angels long to study this great salvation that God has brought about in Christ. It captivates them. They think about it all the time. And it's not even for them. It's for you and me. God's peace and goodwill came to earth for you in the person of Jesus Christ. Here's another delightful verse about angels from Hebrews 1, verse 14. It says that the angels are ministering spirits sent out by God to serve those who will inherit salvation. Let that verse sink in. Minister, the angels are ministering spirits sent out by God to serve as, as servants to us who will inherit salvation. Do you long to look into your salvation as much as the angels ministering to you, serving you do? Are you enamored by the gospel? Is anything more wonderful to you than your reconciliation to God? Have you ever received a greater, more important gift than the forgiveness of your sins? There's nothing deeper than the gospel. It's the wonder of your life. And the angels still haven't gotten over it. 
a, a lot of problems in your life come because you've gotten over it. A lot of problems in my life come because I've gotten over it. The reason you're having a difficult time forgiving a family member or a brother in Christ is that you've gotten over your peace with God. Could it even be that some of the troubles in your life loom so large because you're less than captivated by your salvation through the forgiveness of sins? You're, you're anxious about that thing in your life. But, but here, here God is, the one who made peace with you when you were estranged from him. And he's telling you that you have peace with him and he's in charge of everything. It, it's, it's all good. Don't ever get over your peace with God. Never get over the salvation Christ won for you in his body, in the flesh of his body. Don't ever stop longing to look into the wonders and the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One day, there will be absolute political peace, absolute economic peace, absolute relational peace, absolute world peace. The whole earth will be full. It will be full of peace, as full as it can get of peace at every level of every kind. One day you will experience absolute inner peace, a peace that surpasses anything you can experience in this life. But today, right now, if you believe in Jesus, if you're in Christ, if you've turned from your sins to follow Christ, you have absolute, with peace, absolute peace with God now, and you have it in its fullest and final form. This means that you're equipped to be a peacemaker. Through you, through you, people of God, that in time's peace that is yet to come can begin to become a reality now, you are agents of the peace of God now that flows from your peace with God. Because God has reconciled you to himself, you're equipped to bring about reconciliation in your relationships. Because God has made peace with you, you're equipped as far as it depends on you to live peaceably with all and to live in harmony with one another. Because God blessed you when he could have just cursed you, you're equipped to bless those who persecute you rather than cursing them. Because God did not repay you evil for your evil against him, you're equipped to repay no one evil for evil, but instead to give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of of all. Because God didn't take out his rightful vengeance on you, you're equipped never to avenge yourself, but to leave it to the wrath of God. Because God fed you when you were hungry and gave you something to drink, when you were thirsty, you're equipped to feed your enemy when he's hungry and to give your enemy cold water when he's thirsty. Because God overcame your evil with good, you're equipped 
by his spirit not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with true good. Because God has forgiven you in Christ, you're equipped to be kind and tender-hearted to one another, forgiving each other as you have been forgiven in Christ. Christian, you're at peace with God. Revel in this wonderful reality, this great news. During this Christmas season, may God rest ye merry. That is, may he cause you to be Mary, more than ever, as you learn to rejoice anew in your peace with him. God rest you, Mary, gentlemen and ladies and children. God make you, Mary. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. O tidings of comfort and joy. Let's pray. We thank you for these tidings of comfort and joy. O Father, we are grateful that when we had gone astray, when we were content in our estrangement from you, content to live in our sin, when we were ignorant of your promises in Christ, you reconciled us to you. You made peace with us while we were your enemies. Oh God, help us to rejoice in this truly. And Lord, may this week this good news become more central to us, to our thoughts to our decisions, to the way we spend our time and our resources. And we ask that your spirit, who has united us to Christ, would continue to move us, to bring us from one degree of glory to another as we learn to trust in Jesus more. We ask for this in his name, the name of Jesus. Amen.